Hello, I'm Catherine Kovacic and this is The Right Way Podcast. Having a great time talking about books. Thank you for that introduction there, Catherine Kovacic. This is The Right Way Podcast program. I am your host, Samuel James Elliott. The person you heard from then, Catherine Kovacic, is the person that I spoke to today about her uh, new book, Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, Just Murdered. This is publication day, so I feel extra privileged getting the chance to speak to Catherine. So for those of you not in the know, Catherine is a writer, author, teacher who's taught me at uh, Little Old Me at Faber Academy uh, Crime Strand on Faber Academy. So Alan Armand's Faber Academy for those of you not in the know. But Catherine has also written True Crime as well. That was one of her latest books was The School Girl Strangler. In addition to her Alex Clayton uh, art series as well, art mystery series as well. Uh, so Catherine talked to me about the Miss Fisher modern murder mystery Just Murdered. So as its title suggests, it is an adaption of Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, Just Murdered, the television series. Uh, Catherine spoke to me about her process as to how she went about the project itself, how it first came to her, and how she then went about adapting the, the original screenplay for Deb Cox into her own sort of novel there. So I want you all to give a big digital round of applause to Catherine Kovacic uh, regarding her novel, Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, Just Murdered. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks, Sam, and thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. So good. And you wore the Wheels and Doll Baby shirt, and I had, in my memory, no. sorry, listeners, just to, to let you know, Catherine has a very, very cool Wheels and Doll Baby shirt, Australian, Australian brand, very cool Wheels and Doll Baby shirt, skull and crossbones. Um, I also have that shirt, although I neglected to, to wear it. But Catherine didn't come remembered. Yeah. Um, also, what I was going to say is happy publication day. I did not know today was publication day. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really great thing that we're recording today. Um, it's it's sort of it, it's kind of been a secret and then been in the works for so long that it kind of crept up on me a little bit too. But thank you very much. Awesome. Fantastic. So what I wanted to start off with, and you probably listened to a few of the episodes of the show, Catherine, you probably know how it goes where I say, where did the idea come from? Because it's always a good icebreaker. It's always good to find out. But your case is a bit unique because it's obviously started, was adapted from a screenplay. So I kind of wanted to hear about how the, those wheels came in motion. You kind of came to ultimately pen this, this uh, Just Murdered. Sure. Um, it, was, it was really weird, actually. So I got a friend request on Facebook from a publisher at Allen & Unwin. And my first thought was, is this legit? Because, you know. And then my second thought was, hell yes, except... Um, and then she immediately messaged me and said, could you send me your email? Because I want to ask you a question. And I thought, okay, she's going to want to send me a book to, to do a puff piece for the cover, you know, to read the book and say, this is a fantastic book, go out and get a copy. And she emailed me straight away and said, um, what are you working on right now? And I said, well, I, at that point I was finishing up the edits of my true crime book, The Schoolgirl Strangler, and I said, you know, just sort of wrapping things up. And she said, I've got a project I'd like to ask you about. And then she kind of loosely laid it out for me, but then she said, and here's a confidentiality agreement. So before we kind of got deeply into the nuts and bolts of the project, um, I was signing documents to say that I wouldn't talk about it to anyone for the foreseeable future. And then I was told once we got through that stage that it was the, a novelisation of Ms Fisher, which is the spin-off of Kerry Greenwood's Peregrine Fisher, of, sorry, Phryne Fisher, um, 1928 things. And Peregrine Fisher is... Friday's niece and every Cloud Productions who made the original Friday Fisher movie and television shows uh, had already done season one of Peregrine and they were keen to, to do a novelisation of this new character, which the characters belong to every Cloud, they're not Kerry Greenwood's characters, uh, which is set in 1964. So we had a, a sort of a general talk about, you know, what it would look like and, and how, how it would fit and very important for them is the, the Fisher world and what the fans want when they read a, a Fisher book, whether that's Briony or Peregrine. And so then they said, would you write a sample chapter? And they gave me the show Bible, which is uh, the, the book that outlines all the characters and their roles in the story and the general world. So it tells you, you know, what year it is and what the feel of the whole production is. And they gave me the script for Just Murdered, which was about, I think, 15 to 20 pages long from memory. For the entire, which was, that was, a, I think, a 90-minute ep. They were doing four episodes of, of 90 minutes. So I had a month to do a sample chapter, and they all liked that. So then I had, I think, wow, I think I had about five and a half, six months 
to turn 15 to 20 pages into 70 to 80,000 words. So that was my lockdown year. So how did it, so it sounds like, cause I was kind of going to follow up with like, was there any sort of apprehension towards, um, or in regards to the project itself from the outset, like were you a bit like, Ooh, at all in relation to it? Hugely apprehensive. Um, you know, Kerry Greenwood is such a, a doyen of Australian crime writing and the mm. Franny fiction character is so loved. Um, just, just the idea of, of following in Kerry's footsteps uh, and trying to appeal to that, well, hopefully appealing to that audience. Um, and so at first it was, I was like, oh, I'm going to go and I'll, I've got Kerry's books on the shelf. I'll go and read Kerry's. I'm like, no, no, don't read Kerry's books at all. So I avoided even looking at them. Um, and then also I, I think for me it was someone else's characters too. Mm. So these, these characters are developed by Deb Cox at Every Cloud. Um, and so I found that that while I, you know, once I'd sort of said, yeah, I'll do this sample chapter, you know, fired up the new document and read the script, I was like, ah, and I just, like, I couldn't write anything for a couple of days. I really, I had to sit with those characters in my head and kind of get to know them for several days before I could start to, to craft the story for them. Um, and all, all the time, I'm very conscious of that, you know, of that fan base that was already out there. And I know even in terms of the television series, there's already, you know, there's, there are people who just don't want the 1960s one, they want the original 1920s and that's it. Um, and, you know, Kerry's writing style is, is just very distinct for Friday. And I thought, well, I can't, you know, I can't do Kerry, I have to do, and the characters are actually quite different too. Mm. Peregrine's very different to Friday, but they have that same, the ethos, that sort of um, strong female lead. So I, yeah, I kind of had to avoid thinking about it and I, I kind of had to not let myself get inside my head too much. And then I think the extra scary thing was because we were under confidentiality agreements, I couldn't get anyone to really read the manuscript for yeah. me for the how I was going uh, until um, we had a, 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 50, a clause in to send 50% to them so that they could see that I was on track with where every cloud wanted to take these characters in future series and with, that I was capturing the, the feel of their world. So that 50% mark was the first time anyone other than me had, had seen what I was doing. So that was, that was a real scary thing, sending that in and just waiting to get the response. It, yeah. yeah, so intense because, like, I was going to ask you about that. It's interesting that you already mentioned it about, like, if you, if you consulted Kerry Greenwood's books or, or not because, like, it's, it's, it's such a, a double-edged sword. Like, is it that you want to kind of consult and, you know, tonally or voice match? And, and then there's also the other thing of being like, well, no, I kind of want to strike out on my own and don't really want that to kind of stifle me too much. And I did wonder about that because I wondered about the only other sort of comparison I could kind of immediately draw from or, or liken to was kind of the, um, the whole Girl of the Dragon tattoo series when obviously Stig Larson died and then the, the mentors picked up. Uh, I love all those books, but um, yeah, I felt like again, there was a huge public outcry about that, and I wondered if that sort of uh, impeded you. It's interesting as well that you mentioned that there was sort of this period where you had written a certain amount. I think you, you like it, I said fifty percent, and then that was the first time that consulting you had this problem as well. We couldn't get really beta readers because it was just such a kind of clandestine operation. Right. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, in terms of, of Kerry, I think I, I made a conscious decision once I'd sort of thought, don't look at Kerry's books. Mm. I thought I have to, I have to write it from the way I would write it. That if I tried to make myself like Kerry Greenwood, it's just going to, it's going to be stiff and horrible. And you, know, you can't, I, you can't do that. You've got to be true to your own writing. Um, and, and for me, it was, I suppose it's really more being true to the characters too. So I just had to give, give my best self to them. And that meant not trying to, to, you know, follow the, the patterns of the way Kerry writes. But it also sounds like there's a bit of a, like a natural sort of uh, innate balance that you, you had to then do where it was like uh, half remaining. And obviously it's, it's, as you've kind of outlined there, it was sort of the, the more sort of stringent uh, elements of having to kind of follow what's, what's been outlined. So there's, there's this of kind of faithfully staying truthful to the source material and realizing that story. And there's also your balance of kind of wanting to realize your own writerly vision. So was that sort of constantly at play there as well? It was, but look, every cloud were really great. They, you know, they said that, that I could, you know, pretty much they said, you know, don't, you don't have to stick to our script model and you can go off as much as you like. So um, I think at first I was, I was very, you know, very sort of thinking, oh, I kind of got to, I've got to go in this direction, you know, follow that sort of pattern that, that they had in the script. But um, I think once we sort of, I, I got into it more and then we came back to editing, you know, it, it was a lot freer. And as I said, that just because they were so great about, you know, we want you to, to, to push it out there and do more with it. And obviously because of the way, you know, a script is written, 
you, I mean, you had to, you couldn't, you couldn't just keep that 15 pages and, and, you know, stretch it out. There had to be more of a world built around it. There had to be more scenes. And they've also got the very good advantage that they can do nice little segues on screen. You know, they just put up a shot of a Melbourne tram and suddenly you've moved from the police station to, to the adventurous headquarters or something like that. Um, you can't kind of do that when you're writing, can you, Sam? You've got to, mm. got to give the, take the reader along with you for the ride. So they were really great about it. And um, the interesting thing was that then a couple of times then when I, I, I also didn't look at the, um, the, the show, the series one show, the DVD of that, until I'd sort of done the bulk of the writing. And it was interesting to then find out that a couple of places that a line that I'd just put in was a line that they'd ended up using too. And so it was, it was interesting to see that that, that sort of made, gave me some confidence that I was in the right kind of mindset and the right world. Mm. It's interesting that you also mentioned about the, um, the format and how the two mediums are so different. And I kind of wondered if that was also sort of actually afforded you then the writerly freedom. So uh, like you mentioned about the transition, you can't obviously show that with a book uh, with, a, with, with prose, but you can then obviously have fun with the, the freedom of then you doing your own sort of writerly thing as to how you depict it. And I was wondering if that's sort of where you uh, sprang from and that sort of allowed you to flourish and kind of realise the story as your own. Yeah, I think so. And I think being a, a Melbourne person and also being a, a history person, you know, I sort of have, have my head around a lot of historic buildings and sort of sites and places in Melbourne. So it's easy for me to think, you know, like when I look at look at the television production and I see the adventure of something, well, that's Labasa and I'm, you know, reasonably familiar with that property. And, you know, I can look at an exterior location and say, oh, they've filmed out at the Newport Rail Yards and turned that into, you know, whatever they've turned it into. And so that helps that helps put me in the headspace. If I can put those characters in settings that I'm familiar with, and you know that I've walked through the Maya mural hall and I know what the murals are like, and that's our staircase there, you know, that really helps me. So I think that that visual element is is a real boon for me. Tell me a little bit about the the historical uh, research process or, or what you did to to then obviously bring that to life. Because I myself haven't seen the the show counterpart, but um, you exquisitely brought it to life, Catherine, in terms of like these these this incredible sense of place with all these different. Some of them I assume had to be fictional, such as the um, Blair's Emporium and boutique shopping arcade and stuff. But you still there was this element of realism, and I guess I kind of originally thought well, it must have been something kind of similar to how you sort of brought to life like the schoolgirl strangler, albeit slightly different. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, the way I like to work, I, I'm not an author that can put in a blank spot in my manuscript and say, you know, come back and fill in the historic detail here. I, I have to kind of work through it sequentially. So if I don't know what a detail is like, I have to go away and, and research that building or that setting that I want for it. So um, I look at a lot of old magazines from that period, um, even mail order catalogues for clothing. Certainly the the, the mural hall, so the, where they have the, the fashion parade, that's essentially the Maya Mural Hall, which is still here in Melbourne, which is a beautiful space sort of on the, on the, the top floor of the building. Um, and I, I sort of think back, we used to have a, well, that's where David Jones is now, there's another fabulous old building that used to be Buckley and Nunn, and that was sort of one of those things with the sort of the rattly thing, rattly escalators and, you know, operators in the lifts and things like that, a real sort of, you know, back to the age of, of when shopping was a real outing and an event. Um, and there are also great things on the National Archives. You know, they did prom fabulous promotional films for, for the capital cities of Melbourne in the 1960s. You know, they're like little 20-minute um, sequences of, you know, what the city was like then as, as kind of to send it over to, you know, to Britain to encourage people to come here. And so, you, you know, you can literally see what the Victoria market was like in you know, 1965 or something and see what people were wearing. Um, so there's, there's all these little things like that. But yeah, National Archives and Film and Sound Archives was just fabulous for finding little nuggets of, of information like that. Does that kind of also then carry on with the fashion? Because one of the main cores I thought really came alive throughout was the, the descriptions of dresses and stuff like that and the cake, the faux cake. But essentially <laughs> the fashion shows themselves and the, the dresses were just so... Um, almost lovingly described and faithfully represented in terms of uh, what I think they visually they'd look like. And again, I wondered, I was like, where did all this come from? Was this something that you already had an interest in or was this something that was completely new to you? Well, I think if, you, if you're looking at my Instagram at the moment, you'll probably see that there are a few, uh, few vintage things hanging in the back right. of my wardrobe that have been pulled out for the occasion. Uh, so, yes, I do have a, a bit of an interest in, in vintage fashion in that regard. Um, certainly, um, I think, Having then seen the original um, Peregrine Fisher television show, you, clothes are a big element of what's mm. going on there because it's about that 60s sort of pop and colour. Um, 
and I think so. Yes, I have had an interest in it already, but it was. I think that's also something that um, going back to Kerry's books again. Um, she always described what Franny was wearing, you know, in her 1920s style. And I think if you look at the um, the Miss Fisher fan base, um, the clothes are a part of it for them. So um, in the US, just the last month, they had Miss Fisher Con, which is their con con sort of conference for the original Miss Fisher thing. And there's lots of people there, you know, dressed in their 1920s regalia with their cloche hats on and things like that. So bringing the fashion to life was an important part of, of bringing Peregrine's world to life, I think. Cars too. Got a bit of a thing for cars. The I wrote it down. It was the Austin Healey three thousand, and I looked yes. it up. What a magnificent car! Tell me they tell me the publishers hooked you off on them. You got to drive one around. Surely, surely they did oh, that for you. I, I wish, I wish, but you know, it's. I, I had this. I had the Bond car kind of thing in my head. You know, one of those original Bond cars. The the um, the Aston Martins went through one of the auction houses a couple of years ago, and it was legitimately fitted out with all those things that you see in the Bond movies, which just blew my tiny mind. You know that, that you could make the faux gun come out of the back of the car, and the, the knivey, knives come out of the the wheel hubs. It's like seriously, they did that. I guess because no computer generated special effects back in <laughs> the original Bond movie days, so they built a car like that. Go figure. And, um, and similarly, there was recently an auction, sorry, probably off on a bit of a tangent now, of um, memorabilia from the Spy Museum in the US. And there was this fantastic um, handbag, a Russian handbag or purse really, cosmetics case, with the complete, you know, spy cam and recorder in the purse. And I really wanted to buy that. You know, it had a really low estimate on it, but it ended up going for like 30,000 US dollars. It's, it's a whole world out there, Sam. There is indeed. I mean, and, and first and foremost, there, Catherine, definitely, definitely never apologise for going on a tangent. Tangent's what I live for, so let's 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 never apologise for that because that's what the readers and the listeners listen to. But um, kind of also talking. So we've mentioned the fashion. We've talked about that. We've talked about the architecture. There was also you kind of woven there as well some um, some obviously at the then time sort of contemporary issues that women were facing as well. Um, the sort of stigmatization of the contraceptive pill at one point, uh, the the character or what one such character that's uh, that was mentioned, his name was Harvey. He kind of reminded me of another real life kind of contemporary Harvey in some respects. Um, mm -hmm. And I wondered about that as well. If that was something that you that you had um, wanted to, because you, you did so subtly and never sort of detracted from the overall mystery of of that at hand. But it was something that I thought of quite a lot as well. Um, I think that's that's sort of uh, essential to Peregrine's character. So the issues of the 1960s, and I think that's part of the reason every cloud set it in, specifically that sort of 1964 Camelot era. You know, for Australia, probably even more so than America, it was a real period of change and a real period of change for women. So that's really sort of integral, I think, to the whole feeling of Peregrine's world, um, her place as a woman in that society, and and the. The boundaries she can step over and the boundaries, the things she's still sort of confined by. And I guess that's, you know, the whole thing with the, the detectives and the police, you know, there's, there's one, the senior police officer who's, you know, calls her girly and things like mm. that, you know, he's an old school guy, um, but he's a bit nasty with it too. So I think that's, that's really integral to the, the whole sort of the whole world that they're in. What a fun character then to write, um, Peregrine, in terms of, uh, so she's, she's someone, in some respects, I've only ever read one, but um, of Modesty Blaze. Have, have you read? Yes. Yes, yes. So like this kind of um, sort of subverting all the conventions or, or has all the traits that are only afforded to men kind of written of the era. Yeah, so like the, the, the courage, the bravery, the ability to, and the desire to go and sort of explore these sort of darkened areas. Peregrine does it all herself, never kind of shy of going into a darkened area by herself or exploring. And um, I did wonder about that because I was wondering, like, it, 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 the fun that you must have derived from writing a sort of character like that, even if it wasn't originally your own creation. She was really great fun to write. And I think because she's a bit of a rough diamond, you know, she's, she's finding her feet in this whole new world in the city, um, having come into money and becoming a detective, as it were. Um, so she's, she's still sort of finding her way, but she has all these, these skills that she really doesn't know she has because she's kind of just drifted through life up until this point. Mm. But she's learned a lot along the way. So it's, um, it's fun to sort of to, to have her build on those skills and to have her coming out of herself and also to just to, to be able to, you know, to suddenly do something like, you know, she could, she could strip an engine, but, you know, she's never really been called on to do it so far. Um, she knows how to shoot because she was living in the country and she was rabbiting when she was a kid. And this is not, you know, everyday kind of skills. 
but originally the the women that she she meets when she comes to the city are the the exceptions the sort of the academics the really high achievers and she thinks she can't bring anything to to the party that she's just this kind of you know bumbling country girl who's come from nowhere with no money uh so it's really interesting to to be bringing that character and to be bringing her into herself, really, I guess. You touched on so many things that I wanted to bring up. So let's talk first and foremost about the Adventurers Club. So I wanted to know about that first and foremost, because again, and you kind of also this sort of alluded to what you, you mentioned before about the craft of, of film and or television, how you can show certain images or people in the background. But with with you, and I wondered if you would you yourself would kind of expand on their, their backstories a little bit, because there was a really good introduction at the start uh, as to certain members. But... Firstly, Catherine, can you just give us a brief overview in case listeners aren't familiar with the Adventurists Club and, and all of that? Sure. So the, the Adventurists Club of the Antipodes uh, was established by Phryne Fisher and her best friend, Bertie Burnside. Um, Phryne Fisher, who is uh, Peregrine's aunt, uh, they were unknown to each other, has disappeared in a plane crash in Papua New Guinea. Um, presumed dead, but of course, we don't know that for certain. Uh, and this is why Peregrine has been called to, to accept her aunt's inheritance. The Adventuresses Club is essentially, you don't have to be adventuresome, but you have to be um, an exceptional woman. So there are scientists, there are uh, botanists, um, uh, a fencer, the woman to climb Kilimanjaro, these sorts of things. So women who achieved in, 19, in the 1960s and earlier than that, so who perhaps have achieved against um, bigger odds than they certainly would experience today. And this is really just a group of, of like-minded women, a, a place of support um, and a place where they can say if they need to. And this is what Peregrine comes to when she comes to the city. I must say that Violetta, Violetta, is it pronounced? Violetta, Violetta yes. Yep. Violetta, she was, she was up there as uh, one of my favourites, I must, I must admit. Um, so with with this club, and you kind of talked about this, this sense of wanting a, like a, a Peregrine has been somewhat adrift through life, trying to find a sense of belonging. And this, uh, this club ostensibly provides that. But uh, it's, Bertie doesn't exactly accept her, first and foremost. There's a, there's a little bit of a period of uh, understandably as the story develops, we, we understand why. But um, I want you to talk a little bit about this as well, because there's this, yeah, there is this theme of Peregrine, particularly wanting to, wanting to find some place to feel uh, at one with and then uh, somewhat finding it. And then there's the challenges that arise from that. But just this sense of t- togetherness, I guess, that kind of comes up at the end of that. But anyway, give, give us a little talk about that, Catherine, as to that. Well, certainly, yeah, I think so. Bertie is, um, is feeling the loss of her friend, Phryne. So she's, she's already got her back up a little bit when, when Peregrine rolls into town. And Peregrine can see that this, this group of cohesive women, you know, that this is, this is almost like a haven for her, that, that there's, there's something that, that bonds these women together that's more than just friendship. Uh, and I think she, she really wants a part of that from the beginning because she's never had that. Um, she and her mother, who has, has passed away, were, you know, drifters, essentially. Her mother liked to move from place to place. So she's never had a, a sense of belonging. She's never had a permanent home. And, uh, and she can see that in the Adventuresses Club. Birdie Burnside, who is the, the president, um, is, you know, she has a past of her own. She was, will say something during the war um, to be discussed in the future, I'd say. Um, but she still carries herself in that way. She, she rides a motorbike, you know, she, she wears jodhpurs. She's, a, she's, a, she's got a tough exterior. Um, I hate to, hate to use the trope, but, but, but a heart of gold. But she, you know, she's, if you can get beneath that exterior, she is the friend that you will have for life. She is someone that you will and truly want on your side. And she would, she would do anything. She would lay down her life if, you know, if, if that was what she needed to do for you once you are into Bertie's circle. So she is a person well and truly worth knowing. Um, her brother Samuel is there. He's the odd job man. He's just like the, the geek. He is the, uh, the, I guess he's the sort of the... Not the Q. Well, he, he's I was going to say Q, Q. like, a, yeah, are you going to like yeah. him to kind of Q? Kind of, because, yeah. Not, not quite as, as professionally polished as Q. He's more of a, a tinkerer. Yeah. He does come up with some good stuff. So, yeah. Absolutely. Look, we, again, when Peregrine first comes to the Adventurists Club, there's a, there's a large feeling of, I felt that there was a duality of what she was trying to do, which is she wanted to kind of step out from her, her auntie's shadow uh, which is a huge shadow cast over, obviously, with all of her greatness and all of her achievements, 
uh, left this sort of indelible impression within the adventurous club. And then there's also a feeling of uh, not so much ineptitude, but a feeling of perhaps unworthiness of the, the, the name, the Fisher name, and taking that on. And I wonder if that was also something that you kind of uh, thought of as well, or if I was completely off with that. No, no, very much so, I think, because, you know, the Adventures Club has a bit of a rarefied atmosphere, mm. but certainly um, even within that, Franny Fisher was a, was a revered person. You know, she was, she was their original president. She was the one who helped set it up with Bertie and she was the leading light. She was, she was the one who, I guess, put the, the adventure in Adventurous, if I can do that sort of right and say that. So um, all the adventurers are feeling her loss. Um, there's a point where VLS says, you know, who's going who's gonna to stand up to the bad guys in this town and who's going to, to protect us because there's no one if Franny's not there. So these are huge, huge shoes to fill. You know, there's, there's the empty chair at the boardroom tailor with a table, use words, with adventurous Fisher, you know, on the back of it. And, you know, she's inherited everything else. Can she inherit this? Definitely not. This is, you know, the adventurous is aghast that she would even think to potentially plant her derriere in the revered chair of Franny Fisher. So there is, a, there is an echo in, in everything. And then she, she's Franny's house and Bertie says, well, it's still Franny's house. You may have inherited it, but it's only until Franny comes back. So there's still this expectation that she's on borrowed time, using someone else's money, sleeping in someone else's bed, but trying to impress these people in her own right at the same time. It's interesting. Also, with with this, Catherine, I was wondering in terms of, so you've, you've got your own process for how you've written all your own stories. And you mentioned at the beginning as well about how uh, there's obviously, there's a, there's already a, a fan, fandom or a fan base of people that are, that know the show, love the show and the, you know, the books, Carrie Rainbow books and all that. But I wondered if that then sort of uh, was in the forefront of your mind with in terms of how, you normally go about writing a mystery because there's, you know, is it the, the amount of gore or um, grisly sort of murders that you show or choose not to show? Is that, you know, the way in which uh, the detectives work things out? Did, did, did that kind of change a little bit for you? Did you feel that that sort of did or? Yeah, I think it, it definitely did. Um, there's, I think there's an extra element of cheekiness in the, in, in certainly in Peregrine Fisher's world, but there is also um, certainly no, no foul language. So, you know, I'd be inclined to throw a few swear words in my own writing and that doesn't happen in Peregrine's world. Um, thinking about the language, because we're in 1964 too, so that becomes something, just the, the speech patterns and the words that, that you would use. And even if it's a, if it's sort of a slang term, was it something that was in use then? Uh, so there's, there's those elements to it. But certainly, yes, um, that slightly, slightly stuffy language jokes that I would perhaps, you know, or double entendres that I would perhaps have put into my own writing. I thought, oh, not, they'd not put that in there. So, um, yes, there was, a, there was a little bit of a, we'll say, say soft, softening, buff, buffing the edges of um, things that I would usually do to fit into to the world that we're in. And probably, yeah, I think, you know, fashion became more of a thing um, for, for Peregrine than I would usually tend to, to fuss with, with characters. But again, that is, you know, that's part of what she's doing. She's a, you know, she's been a girl who hasn't had much money, who's inherited not only great wealth, but a great wardrobe too. So, you know, that's, that's part of her discovering her, her new persona is, um, is stepping out in some great clothes. It is because, I mean, so for example, with the schoolgirl strangler, given that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a historical, picture, uh, historical account, sorry, and it's, it's true crime, um, that in itself, I assume, would present its own sort of um, sort of challenges in terms of you feeling that it's done. Um, I assume that there must have been some sort of tightrope balance of ensuring that it's done tastefully while still being as informative as possible and not sort of shying away from the kind of innate grisliness of of the crimes. And then, so to counterbalance that, what sort of uh, you've mentioned about the, the adjustment of language and stuff like that is that sort of the only things that were like? Did you still feel that you got to be? Catherine writing rather than sort of um, having to sort of center some of your other elements that kind of shine through of your, your other, your other work. I think so. Yeah. I think um, because my, in my crime fiction, Alex Clayton is a, you know, she's mm. a female protagonist and it's a, it's a lighter crime world too. There's, there's not sort of, you know, there's no one sort of firing up a chainsaw and <laughs> blood splattering up walls kind of thing. Um, 
there's a few dead bodies, but you know, nothing quite that that graphic. So it's it's that similar sort of, you know, softer crime world. Um, so yeah, I, I did feel that I got to certainly got to be myself in writing this. It was, as I said, it was getting my head around writing someone else's characters that was was sort of the real mind bender to start off with. And did it change much, Cameron? Because like you mentioned about, um, like you you gave some ultimately at, at some point, and and then so what about the editing process? Because obviously it changed the beach novel. How was that? How was that for you? Yeah, it was it was really interesting because um, there was a one character in particular, but because they've moved they've moved into the second series now. There was one character in particular who had. Uh, evolve considerably from the way he'd been portrayed in that initial Bible. So, you know, I'd been sort of working from that and and depicting him in a certain way. And then we sort of got to that 50% and thought, well, he's kind of turned into this a bit more. He's, he's not quite, you know, so can we go back and sort of soften this and change that? And and so that was kind of like, oh, I bet I had this image in my head of he was just like this. But um, it it was actually a really comfortable thing because I could sort of, oh, yeah, I, I like him better if I can do this with him. And, um, and it helped me sort of, I have a whole backstory for, for several of these characters in my head now, and I don't know if that kind of gels with their actual backstories or if they indeed have in-depth backstories sitting with them, um, with every cloud at the moment. But, you know, I can sort of see, oh, I could, you know, and, and that was something that we had to sort of say. I, I, there were a couple of sort of emails flying backwards and forwards. It's like, I'd like to, to have this sentence in there. I'd like to, you know, have this character refer to that. Can we do that? Because it would kind of reflect on a backstory that hadn't been explored by every cloud. So there are a few things, you know, backwards and forwards about, you know, someone's age, or could I say that someone, you know, refer to someone being in the war or doing something like that, would that work? And every cloud were great. There were, I, don't, I don't think there was any major pushback. There are a couple of things of like, could you just make it a little bit vaguer so that mm. we can still play around with it? But yeah, it was, it was really a really good sort of back and forth process once we got sort of past that initial 50% delivery. Oh, it's so good to hear, like, just in terms of the character starting to kind of inform you of their of their own stories and uh, there being some sort of uh, leeway of that because, yeah, I would hate to hear that that wasn't such the case or that you were, that you were, you were stuffed, which, which you clearly weren't, but I just knew that that would come to you. No, definitely not stifled at all. It's It's been brilliant working with them. Fantastic. So, wow. So... Okay, so it's such an interesting process, though, isn't it, Catherine? Because I mean, it's it's so it's so different to what you normally have in terms of having complete complete freedom. Like you mentioning stuff like Bibles and stuff like that. That kind of is it's interesting because it's it's informative, but it's almost uh, for me frightening. Because then you're like, oh, okay, well, I really need to somewhat follow this rather than going not off the the deep end. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and certainly I think I said that was how I, I thought when I first sort of started, I was like, right, okay, chapter one. And I thought, okay, let's look at the Bible and see what they did to start off with there. And let's look at uh, that script and see how, how it all started off there. And so the first, yeah, the first probably few weeks of writing, it just sort of felt like I was really kind of following the list. And then it just it was ridiculous and it wasn't working. And so I went through the, um, the script and I made a list of the key pop plot points um, and then I just put everything else out of the way and I just worked with the list of plot points you know that said this happens and so there's and that really that really freed me up and as I said it was interesting the number of times that, that things sort of crossed back and then I'd go go back later on and look at the script and say oh they they did the same thing there which was really interesting but a lot of the times you know it's completely all over the place but yeah I think just doing that really freed me up to, to kind of kind of let loose but it was that I think yeah getting out of my own head and forgetting that I was you know that there was Kerry Greenwood hovering in the background and every cloud with their script and their television show and their fan base kind of over there um that I, I just had to kind of get rid of all that so your process was kind of you you would get um the screenplay and then you would have a read of that and then and then you'd kind of go off and and, and do your do your own thing and then sort of coalesce all that together is that kind of how it worked yeah and i i confess that some of my research involved watching um old episodes of the avengers to kind of you know have that miss peel miss peel yeah miss peel that's it to have that whole sort of 60s vibe going on in the background um a little bit of 99 because, you know, not so much Max out of Get Smart because he was sort of bumbling, but she was that, that you know, she was always dressed. She had the cool accessories like the earrings that were actually decoder things and stuff like that. So you kind of get that 99 vibe happening there. So, yeah, there's a little bit of um, 60s reruns going on in the background, a little bit of 
oh, it's just a tiny bit of version of the Gidget, you know, just sort of beach scenes and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, stick to TV. Well, it all got there in the end. So, what, so, so I know this is very early days considering that we're talking about publication on publication day, but like, what does this, now that the, you've already mentioned about, um, the characters starting to somewhat inform you of their backstories and this sort of kind of uh, the creative juices are flowing within this world. Does that then mean that potentially you would like to continue and then maybe pen your own completely original sort of novels if the opportunity arose? Wow. Um, yeah, I could, these, these are such great characters, you know, Deb Cox did a brilliant job bringing them to life on the screen and just, you know, just, making these people, this little group click together. Mm. So it's a, it's a wonderful world to, to step into. And I could, I could definitely have a lot of fun with these characters, but um, as you say, early days. So it's so like, early days. I'm, yeah. yeah I'm, <laughs> it's, it's so early days. But, Catherine, the main thing I always like to ask about on the program, because obviously we get to this point, you're written several books, untold social stories and all that sort of stuff. But I always like to know, because it's obviously now that we're at this point, is how you sort of got here. And there's always, you know, you, the cliche of the crossroads. There's always a point where a writer gets to that they've, had, they've faced this, this one sort of challenge, albeit, you know, a sequential a series of, of challenges where they've kind of gone uh, sort of self-doubt, existential crisis and said, God, what am I doing? And I really want to know what yours is in terms of that, if there is one. Wow. I think, oh, there's still self-doubt, Sam. There's always a bit of self-doubt. I think if you, if you get to the point where you're just so supremely confident in your own work, you're probably turning out fairly crappy work. Mm. Um, you, you've, you've always got to, I think you always have to be thinking, you know, can I make this better? Is this, you know, oh, how am I, how are we doing here? And I think writing, the writing world in particular, you know, it's always, you know, you think you've scaled the mountain, but you realise you've just stepped over the foothill and there's still Kilimanjaro in the distance, you know. There's, there's always another step up that you could take. So there's always a way to push yourself if you're that way inclined. Um, it depends, you know, where, where you want to be in the writing world. But, um, gosh, in terms of existential crisis, yeah, there've been, there've certainly there's been a few of those. But um, I, think, I think perhaps when I wrote the first book, which was The Portrait of Molly Dean, which was my first crime fiction, I think I was almost writing that story because it was based on a, a true crime. I was almost writing that story for the original victim, you know, to, to create a resolution. So I kind of went into that without major expectations of publication or things. It was, it was an exercise for me um, and something for that person in a way. And so... I think the the real crisis came when I sort of I like when I sort of got to the end of writing the manuscript and I thought I need to do something with this now and and I, of course because I'm not one of those people who's gone into writing thinking I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to submit here and I'm going to get myself an agent so I had this manuscript and I thought what do I do now and then I thought I could just go back to my real job and you know find another hobby other than writing but. I didn't. So that was that was probably sort of the, the big turning point was was to actually decide to to push ahead at that point rather than, you know, it would have been very easy to to just say, okay, I've done with that, or I can do an, another story or a short story and you know, just sort of keep doodling away at it. But um because I think putting yourself out there is is a huge thing for, for any writer, for any creative person. Um and I think we're so used to being in our own heads with our characters that then offering them up for other people to pronounce on them and to have an opinion and to, you know, tell you where you went wrong because no matter how good the review is, there'll always be that one sentence that you think, do they mean that or do they really mean? Yeah, there's always something that you can, you know, if you're, if you're having one of those days or whatever that you can, you can pick the one bad word or the one potentially bad word in an absolutely sensational review and focus on that and, you know, but there's always those kind of moments along the way. Um, I think you just have to enjoy the process because I, I like words and I like writing and I like, I like a lovely sentence. I love it when I'm reading someone else's book and there's just a beautifully put together sentence or image that you just have to stop and think, wow, I really, oh, just isn't that lovely and appreciate the words for themselves. So I think that's it. You just, you just always have to come back to, am I enjoying what I'm doing? Because it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Are we here? You know, so true. It's so true, and like, yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally with you on that in terms of the the self doubt and stuff like that. That never, that never, 
that never goes away. Um, what about the, like, did you, did you ever hear any sort of, the, the one that I'm always fascinated by is uh, the second novel, like the kind of the second novel jitters in terms of like, so you, you, you've been picked up, you've done quite well. And then there's this sort of uh, expectation or kind of like, again, you're obviously your own worst enemy all the time when it comes to writing. But if you go, oh God, like, was I a fluke? Like, Am I going to be able to do it again? Am I going to, is it, people going to say it's too samey? It's not samey enough. I've alienated the first audience I managed to attract. Did you, did you feel anything like that or not particularly? I, I started writing the second one when the first one was, was sort of out in its early edit stage. So I think I kind of avoided, avoided actually thinking about it too much. Um, mm. And I had, had the character of Alex Payton and her sidekick, John Porter, so firmly in my head at that mm. stage that it, it just felt like they had stories to tell me. So it, you know, it was just because like Alex comes from an, an art background and I'm sort of an art historian. So I would literally be doing something related to, you know, the paying job, the, the art sort of side of things. And I'd be looking at a painting or a catalogue or something. And I'd suddenly I'd had Alex in my head going, hey, did I ever tell you about the time there was that dodgy Arthur Street painting at the auction? I was like, no, but let me grab a notepad. <laughs> I'll tell about it now. So I just, and the art world is such a grubby little place anyway. So there's so many dirty corners and, scans and things going on it's it's just this you know you can you if you google art crime on the internet you know you can get a hundred story ideas in five minutes basically because there's so many dodgy things going on but um i think that so that for me that was starting writing before i'd had certainly before this, the first book was published i think mm. you know then you don't you don't have any you know you've got your editorial feedback but you haven't had a chance to be lauded or slammed on the public stage by the time I was, you know, well and truly, you know, into, into that sort of second book, I think. I would recommend that. Yeah. Get, 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 it, get it underway. Get Head it underway down. before yeah, people can, can tear you down. That's it. And, and you, you, you read reviews, do you? I don't read Goodreads. Um, yes. But I was going to ask. Do, yeah, no, don't read Goodreads. Um, but I do, you know, if something appears in, in press or, you know, um, bloggers and reviews you know usually it's with one eye closed kind of like that and you can't see this but yeah you're kind of like shying away from the screen and sort of half reading it but not wanting to read it you know mm. but it's it's um yeah it's like watching an accident happen you just you can't look away you know you just gotta got it you know it's gonna go bad but you just can't not watch so but goodreads is goodreads ought to just have crime scene tape you know all over it because that's that's not a healthy place to be no, um, I've known people like I, like I've interviewed people not on the podcast, but just in um, before before podcast days, and uh, I knew some people that had, um, that re- that would read that would read the reviews, and they'd read the really bad reviews as well. And I'm like, that can't be good for you. That just that just can't like. But I suppose everyone's everyone's different. No, I was actually I gosh, it was it was a Mick Heron book, so it was one of the slow house. Um, MI5 series and he actually had a character in that and when that character was having a bad day he would go onto Amazon or Goodreads and just leave shitty reviews for random books that he'd never read uh, and I thought yeah, I'm sure there are actually people who are like that who just go on and just unleash and feel a lot better it's like yeah that kind of place so it's the wild west of the book world I think Absolute wild west. I was, and it's it's so funny that times have changed because I mean, like I think it was uh, William Golding, the guy who wrote um, Lord of the Flies and The Spire and stuff like that. I think he'd write a novel and then go to his country estate or whatever because he just couldn't for like a month or something until like all the the reviews and the then old timey newspapers had kind of ended. Just, just could not handle possibly reading a review. No. Oh, yeah. But anyway, what about? question I always kind of like to end on as well. I always like to hear about the, the times that, you know, the, the, the trials and the tribulations of every writer because no two stories are the same. What about advice that you would give, Catherine, to any aspiring author out there listening? Because, again, I always like this question. You never get the two, two same answers. Ah, okay. So everyone always says keep writing, and that's, that's very true, but it's not always easy to do. Write something different. Um, if you're stuck on your story, go away and you know, write, write a short story. But let, I think my best advice is let your characters take your places. So I've had days where I've sat down thinking I know exactly what I'm going to be writing today and exactly where the story is going. And then I find myself just writing something different and I'm thinking, why are we doing this? And what's going on here? And I have no idea where that thread is going to take me. And the best I can do is liken it to a, a bad 
GPS system, those old navmans, you know, when you think you've programmed that you're just going on the A roads and you're going to start here and end here and it's going to take you an hour. And suddenly that thing's telling you to get off at the next exit. And you can think to yourself, well, does that mean there's like a traffic jam or a roadblock ahead or is this thing just wacko? And so always take the exit. I think that's, that's the advice. Always find out what's down a little side road. And it might be five or 10,000 words that you end up ditching later, but it might be a really great little side trip that just brings your story to life. So interesting. It's, it's, it's a great piece of advice. I'm amazed by that because I thought that particularly with you and mystery writing and stuff like that, I feel like that's the kind of the one, one genre where it's kind of you, you want all your ducks in a row kind of before you, you ever do it. Are you a pantser or? Oh, no, no. I, I like, you know, I like knowing what's, as I said, you know where that end destination is. Mm. And I think I usually know, you know, all the little towns I'm going to visit along the way. But sometimes the characters just, just give me a little deviation. I know we're going to end up back on the same road in the end. Mm. It's just a matter of where that deviation takes us. But no, I'm, I'm oh, oh, no, not pantsing, no. Yeah. That's scary. And that's scary. I, you know, I, like, I like my historic detail. You know, that has to be in place before I can move on to the next thing. And sometimes that completely hamstrings me because I have to go off and do research on what a telephone was like, you know, in 19-whatever before I can move on. And, and it's literally, you know, just two, going to be two sentences, but I can't keep going until I, I know what the telephone looks like and what my protagonist is holding in their hand when they have that conversation because it, it just, you know, it's, I'm seeing that world, so I, I need those details. Yeah, but those are the details that people live for with it, isn't it, when it comes to historical fiction yeah. and stuff like that because you kind of, like, have to. So, like, I can totally understand why you do do that and, like, the authenticity then because I guess it can kind of take a reader out of it if they if the person's not using a rotary phone or they're supposed to be able to pick up a mobile in the twenties kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're, you know, if you're say a law enforcement person and the person's got their guns wrong, you know, the way the mm. gun works or, um, you know, the bullets eject or something like that, that's going to drive you nuts. I know there's a guy online who's written the complete rat. He was the guy in question is an ex Navy helicopter pilot. And he has written the complete ranty diatribe against Dan Brown for his description of helicopters and the way helicopters operate and um, the, the features on particular models of helicopters. So it's a, yeah, it's detail is very important. That's the stuff that keeps, uh, keeps riders up at night is not getting their helicopters right and stuff like that. I'm sure Dan Brown loses sleep over that on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, having said that there was a, an Irish writer, I think last year who um, was doing a historical thing and was talking about, coloured dyes that they would have used in, I think, I can't remember if it's the 15 or 1600s or something. And he'd obviously Googled it and the information had come from um, a, a computer game. So it was all weird things like eye of something or other. And, and it was, you know, and he'd written a legit historical novel. He got fabulous reviews for it. You know, the Irish Times was like, oh, he subverted the genre by doing this and this and this. And everyone else was like, oh, no, actually, he's just done really crap research. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's like, what, yeah. what, what, what's, what do people look for, I guess, with the readers? Like, people want it to be historically accurate or people want it to be entertaining? Because then you get stuff like, I just finished reading um, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy. And, you know, that's like a staggering achievement. But then I've read so many people, uh, historians, that have torn it to pieces and said, well, that's not historically accurate. That's wrong. He's portrayed wrong. She's portrayed wrong. And you're like, wow, like 10-something yeah. years in the making for each and, you know. Yeah, I think, well, that kind of comes down to why, you know, are they reading it just to tear it apart? Because, mm. you know, I think there's you know, certain people who, you know, go in with that sort of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the fault. You know, that's, it's, it's uh, so if, if you're just there for pure pleasure, you know, you can, you can leave that at the door, can't you? You can. But if there's something really jarring, then, yeah, it is going to bring you out of the story. But um, I suppose if, you know, if that's if, if a particular period of history is not your forte you know it's not your speciality you can just throw yourself into that and and go with it but mm. um, yeah. yeah i think you're totally right i think it's uh, like you kind of also mentioned that before as well i think it was more about like writing for yourself and and uh yeah the reviews the reviews are to be read at your own peril the way you described yeah. goodreads as being the wild west of the writing world is also very good but um yeah Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on the show uh i thoroughly enjoyed um probably enjoyed just murdered and i've absolutely enjoyed speaking to you i have also really really enjoyed having you as a teacher as well at faber did you go did you go to faber is it did you did yes you... i did yes i did yeah um, yeah, yeah. So that was 
That was sort of where I developed the portrait of Molly Day. But, that's yeah. so good because that's like you're on one side of the desk at one point and then you're on the other side of the desk at the other point and then you're the one doing the teaching. So it's like yeah. it's a kind of like Simba-type circle of life sort of riderly situation, I Absolutely. guess. And you know what? And I, I nearly chucked it during the Faber course. I, I nearly bailed on the Faber course. I just thought, why am I, you know, why am I wasting my time here? So, oh, Why? I, I just, you know, I was just, just having that, we're talking about the existential doubt moment. Oh, so, okay. yep, so half, halfway sort of through drafting that, that novel and doing the course, I was just thinking, oh, yeah. I think, and because there were so many people in the course who'd, you know, been writing for much longer than I had and who, you know, who were really, really invested in it. And I felt like I just, I didn't have as much drive as they did. Mm. So, and so I was just like, oh, you know, but um the teachers talked me around and I kept going. And so here we are. Oh, that's so good. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Catherine. Have a lovely publication day for Just Murdered out now. Uh, I'll put the, the link and such into the bio, but yeah, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Sam. It's been an absolute delight for me too. So everyone, that was Catherine Kovacic talking to me about Miss Fisher's modern murder mysteries, Just Murdered, that is just out today. I've got to speak to Catherine on publication day, so I feel extra special. That was awesome to do so. Absolute pleasure talking to Catherine, former teacher there, fantastic writer, talking about Miss Fisher's modern murder mysteries, Just Murdered. So in addition to you guys being able to buy a copy from your local bookseller, I'll naturally put in the link slash bio of this particular episode, the description uh, on Spotify or SoundCloud if you're listening to it on there, the link to uh, Catherine's publishers, Alan Nunwin, so you'll be able to pick up a copy from them. Uh, always also be sure to pick up uh, any and as many books as you possibly can from your local bookshops, brick and mortar bookshops, Sydney-wide. Even if you're not in Sydney, be sure to purchase off them. The vast majority have some sort of deal with uh, free postage and handling. But uh, yeah, this is the best the best time I've found in the lockdown to read all those books that you always were going to but you never have and to always uh, increase that TBR pile because it can never be too big. So be sure to contact your local bookshop, buy up big, support them during this uh, particularly gross lockdown period. Uh, and again, yeah, thank huge thanks to Catherine for talking to me on publication day. That's made me feel really special actually. And uh, yeah, in the interim, uh, thank you so much for you guys always listening. Always appreciate the patronage, the, the good vibes sent my way. I feel them in my heart region. It's always a lovely thing to feel. Uh, rest assured, a lot more episodes coming up. Might be lockdown. Doesn't mean I can't keep doing what I love, which is talking to really cool people about their craft. So please stay tuned. I will, I keep putting, I, I haven't meant to put it off, I assure you, but I will be doing another video soon showing some, uh, some titles that will be coming up on the show soon. In the interim, thank you so much. If you're in Sydney, you're in lockdown, keep, uh, Keep fighting the good fight. We are getting through this as a nation. This is not a nation divided. We are united in this gross lockdown and we will get through it and eradicate the COVID-19 scourge in the fullness of time. But in the interim, be sure to keep reading because let's be serious, it's probably one of the best activities you can possibly do on this life of ours. But uh, everyone have a lovely afternoon now.